If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite your attention to the Gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, I hope that as you came in this morning, you received a bulletin. You'll find an outline in that bulletin that will help you to keep up with the message, which is entitled, The Mighty Meek. And this is another message in our series of messages, working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. The greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, addressing some of the greatest subjects that you and I will ever deal with in life. And of course, following this idea of how to live your life according to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the first eight or so verses of chapter five, we have what's called the Beatitudes. And we're looking at the various Beatitudes and the principles that are there. And as I've shared with you from the very beginning, I believe that if we would follow the principles that are taught by the Beatitudes, that there's no problem in life, no difficulty that we have to deal with or work through that we couldn't come out victoriously if we followed the principles that are taught in these Beatitudes. And no matter what that difficulty may be, especially if there are two sides, if you're in a conflict, misunderstanding of some kind, a difficulty of some kind, if both sides would follow the principles here, I think it could be worked out. I believe that it could be. And so we've been looking at the Beatitudes, chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, beginning with verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up into the mountains, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And now the one for today in verse 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. The word gentle can also be translated meek and is so translated in the King James Version and in the New King James Version as well as in others. We will see in a few moments that the word gentle is also a legitimate translation of the word meek or the one that we normally refer to as meek. And so today we're going to be looking at the mighty, mighty meek. According to Jesus... Everything we have been taught about getting ahead in this world is wrong. The world says, for example, believe in yourself. Jesus says, believe in me. The world says, strive to be number one. Jesus says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. The world says winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. And Jesus says, he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. The world says, don't get mad, get even. Jesus says, love your enemies. The world says, assert yourself. Jesus says, Deny yourself. The world teaches us how to get ahead. Jesus teaches us how to give ourselves away. The world claims that the one with the most toys wins. Jesus says that you can gain the whole world and yet lose your own soul. The first beatitude speaks about humility, being poor in spirit. He's not talking about being poor poverty and material and physical things. The word literally means to be poor in spirit, which means humility. Recognize humility. Recognize that spiritually you are bankrupt. 
You live in poverty as far as spiritual blessings are concerned apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So recognize that without Christ, you are nothing. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you in due time. The second beatitude says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And so we need to understand the world uh, may look upon tears as weakness, but no, for us, it's the flushing out of the soul. Uh, tear ducts, as I've reminded you before, kind of like the pressure valves of the soul. In a pressure cooker, the steam builds up on the inside. If it doesn't have a way to escape, it will explode. So I believe the tear ducts are God's way of helping us to express our emotions, to get rid of the stress and the tension and the frustration and the conflict that builds up on the inside of us. And so uh, weeping and shedding of tears is not a sign of weakness. It can be in many ways a sign of manhood or womanhood. Today, the third beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If anyone said to you that you were meek, how would you feel? Would you feel complimented or would you feel ridiculed? Some might recall from the idea uh, that we would be meek because to them the idea of meekness is weakness. So who wants to be as meek as a mouse? Who wants to squeak up instead of speak up? Most people probably discount the third beatitude as a nice Sunday school talk, but certainly out of place in the give and take way of the world. The people of the world will never say blessed are the meek. To them, the world does not belong to the weak-hearted or the weak-handed or the weak-willed. The world says, blessed are the mighty men, the muscle men, the mental men, the money men. But Jesus wasn't using meekness in that sense. Quite the opposite. He was thinking in terms of attitude and spirit and outlook on life. There are three basic ideas that I wish to develop with you this morning as we think about the mighty meek. And the first one has to do with the meaning, the meaning of meekness. Now, meekness is a, a, a gem, a jewel of many services. And there are four words, at least four words, that help us to understand what meekness means. And so the first word of meekness that helps to describe and define meekness is the word disciplined. Disciplined. A meek individual is a disciplined individual. Uh, it describes uh, the taming of an individual or the taming of an animal, for example. Uh, we, we talk about horses uh, being tamed. We refer to them as broken, they, a broken horse. Well, he, that term doesn't mean that you take a, a horse literally and break it physically. Uh, a, a broken horse is a horse that has been tamed. A wild horse taken and uh, the individual sits in the saddle and may buck him for a while. May throw him off, he gets back on it, but he keeps working with that animal until he's broken. And by that, we mean that he doesn't, the horse doesn't lose its power, doesn't lose its energy. It's all still there, it's just been brought under control. A broken horse is a horse in which an individual can sit in the saddle, put a rein in its mouth, and control that animal. Control its power, control where it wants uh, the animal to go, to the right or the left, to back up or to go forward. So a broken horse is a tamed horse. All of its energy is, uh, is tamed. Another example of, uh, of, of control or discipline would be like a river. A river, as, as long as it stays within its banks, is a very good thing. 
But when the river overflows, when it floods and overflows its banks, uh, it, it can be very, very destructive. The wind, for example, now it, I guess if there's any one thing that's almost next to impossible to control and is impossible to control is the wind. Uh, but you can take such a thing as a windmill or a, a wind uh, turbine and you can use the wind to generate energy. You, you can take the force of that wind and control that force to turn the blades of a windmill or a turbine. And as a result of that, produce the energy that is needed, whether if it's a windmill to grind the grain or whether it's a turbine to generate electricity or whatever it may be. You can harness the wind to a certain extent. Jesus did on one occasion. When he was in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, remember the night when suddenly a storm came up he was in the, in, the, in the base of the boat asleep and they woke Jesus up with the question, carest thou not that we perish? And Jesus stood up and he rebuked the wind. He brought the wind under control. He said, wind be still. The meaning of that expression, of course, is, is like taking an, a, a, a dog, if you're a veterinarian or, uh, and you're having to work on a dog and without putting it to sleep, you put a muzzle over its mouth. The muzzle over its mouth keeps that dog from biting you when you have to deal with him. Well, in essence, that's what Jesus did with the wind. He muzzled the wind. Wind, be still. And the wind ceased to blow. The waves ceased to, to beat up against the boat. The disciples looked at one another and said, this is a different man. <laughs> Even the wind and the waves obey his will. Now, when we think of discipline, <clears throat> we usually think of punishment. <laughs> Where a child disobeys, so he's punished and disciplined by uh, a, a parent or whomever it may be. Uh, but the word discipline does not only include punishment for when we do wrong, and indeed the writer of the book of Hebrews reminds us that we ought not to look upon the discipline that comes from a parent when we have disobeyed or we've done something wrong. Uh, the King James uses the word chastisement or the chastening uh, that uh, we sometimes don't enjoy being disciplined and chastened by our parents. But a parent who disciplines a disobedient child in a spirit of love and does so because they want the child to do what's right. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that we ought to submit to that discipline and not resent it. And likewise, he is saying that if you are a child of God and you are disobeying the Lord and living outside of the will of the Lord, the Lord is going to discipline you. And you should not resent that. You should express, understand that it comes as an expression of God's love. God would not discipline you if he didn't love you. He disciplines us when we get out of line and disobey him and out of his will. But he does that because he loves us. But that's just one form of discipline. Discipline can also mean to be educated. It can mean to be trained. In just a few days, we're going to be witnessing the Winter Olympics and we'll see skiers and ice skaters and other individuals who are involved in the various ideas of Winter Olympics. Well, those individuals did not get there to be able to participate in the Olympics overnight. They have spent days and weeks and months and years training and disciplining themselves in order that they might uh, participate and qualify and hopefully win uh, in the Olympics. Uh, the Super Bowl will be uh, hopefully in just a few days. Again, those football players didn't just show up overnight 
and, and, and win the games that allowed them to go to the Super Bowl. No, it, it took years and weeks and days and months of disciplining themselves physically and mentally and training themselves in order that they might uh, win the games. A, a soldier who's going out uh, into battle uh, first must go through the boot camp and he must learn to take orders and he must discipline himself. Uh, and, and, and obey when he's given an order. Otherwise, his own life and those of others could be uh, in danger. And so the soldier has to be disciplined as he goes into battle. Well, all of those ideas are wrapped up in our being submissive to the Lord and being disciplined by the Lord. And a meek person is an individual who is willing to, to be disciplined, to come under God's control and be God-tamed, just like a horse is being tamed, then we are tamed by the Lord himself. I, I want you to take your Bibles because I've written on your outline the passage of Scripture from Luke chapter 8. In the eighth chapter of, the Luke, uh, of Luke's gospel, there is the account of Jesus dealing with a man who was possessed by a demon. He's called the, the demoniac, uh, the Gadarene demoniac. Uh, here's an individual who lived in the area of, of Gadara, and, and he's possessed by demons. And so in Luke chapter 8, beginning with verse 26, Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee, and we, that is, when, when Jesus came out into the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons. In other words, he was under the control of demons and who had, been put on, uh, had not put on any clothing for a long time, was not living in a house but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, what business do you have with each, uh, with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, that is, Jesus had. And uh, for that, uh, it had seized the man many times, and he was bound with chains and had shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for we are many. And they were employing him, that is the demon's word, not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain and the demons employed him to permit them to enter the swine and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered into the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus found the man whom the demons had gone out. Now notice, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gadarenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave. That is, they asked Jesus to leave, for they were gripped with great fear. And he got into a boat and returned. But notice, going back to verse 28, it says that this man was possessed by a demon. These demons seized him many times in verse 29. He was bound with chains and shackles, kept under guard, and yet he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons. But now that Jesus has healed him, casting out the demons, it says that the man is now clothed because he'd been running around naked. And he was now clothed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, and in his right mind. So Jesus took control of the individual. Jesus cast out that which had destroyed him and was destroying him. But now bringing that individual under control is in his right mind. 
and he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. We do the same thing when we allow the Lord Jesus to take control of our lives. And so the word disciplined is the definition of the word meek. To be meek is to be disciplined by the Lord. The second idea is wrapped up in the word gentle, and it is so translated in various places. And it is in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5 in my translation, which is the New American Standard, blessed are the gentle. And in 2 Timothy 2.24, Paul also says, a servant of the Lord must be gentle, gentle. Now, what is gentleness? Well, we use the term gentleman. He's a gentleman. A gentleman is a man who practices gentleness, gentleness. A gentleman or a gentlewoman is a person who is courteous and kind and considerate. A gentle person is not headstrong, not rude or offensive. The gentle person is not proud to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I made a mistake. The Bible says in Proverbs 15 verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. So a gentle person will not lash out in harshness. They'll not be rude and crude in the things that they say to other people. But they will be kind and considerate and courteous and gentle in the way that they relate to other people and in the way that they respond to criticism or harsh words that are leveled at them. Albert Barnes was a commentator and preacher lived decades ago, but he wrote a whole series of, of, of books on the different books of the Bible, commentaries. And on this word gentleness, this is what Albert Barnes said. It is also seen in common life that a meek and patient and mild person is the most one who prospers. An impatient and quarrelsome man raises up enemies, often loses property in lawsuits, spends his time in disputes and broils rather than in sober, honest industry and is harassed, vexed, and unsuccessful in all that he does. So be gentle, be kind to other people. One individual was asked, who are the meek? And he responded by saying, those who give soft answers to rough questions. So gentle or gentleness is a good translation and definition of the word meekness. A third word is the word teachable. A meek individual is a teachable individual. On one occasion, as recorded in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. So uh, this is educational terminology. This is a teacher speaking. Uh, Jesus is saying, are you in turmoil? Are you full of frustration? You fret all the time? You have no rest on the inside? Come to me. Sit at my feet. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, that's uh, school terminology. That's sitting down at the feet of the master teacher and learning from them. A meek person is not a know-it-all person, uh, but rather is one who realizes that there are a lot of things that he's yet to learn, and he's willing to learn, especially from Jesus. A meek person will listen. A meek person can be told something. A meek person is not a know-it-all. A meek person is willing to learn and to grow and mature. 
Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, is recorded in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5 and verse 1. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. So Solomon, giving wise advice, is saying, when you come to the house of the Lord, come with listening ears. Listen to what the Lord has to say to you. This is exactly what our Lord was saying to the seven churches of Asia Minor as recorded in the book of Revelation. He concludes each of those letters to the seven churches that says, if you have ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to you. So we need to tune the world out and tune into the Lord and get on his frequency and listen to what he has to say. Now, the Apostle Paul is an example of an individual who ultimately was willing to listen to the Lord. As you may know, the Apostle Paul, he was a wonderful, dedicated Jewish individual up and coming in the Jewish religion and Jewish faith. And, and he took out his frustrations in, in persecuting the church. He made havoc of the church. Uh, he was just going like a bulldozer, a wild animal, tearing up a garden. They, he went into every assembly, every meeting that the Christians had, and he arrested them and saw to it that they were persecuted and put to death even until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And when he met the Lord Jesus, he became tamed. He became teachable, although he was a very wise man already. He realized that he hadn't learned a lot of things about the Lord Jesus and so Ananias pulled him aside in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, began to teach him some. And then in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verses 17 through 24, as smart as Paul was, as a grounded in Jewish theology, for three years he stood and sat in the presence of our Lord and learned what it meant to be a child of God. And thus wrote much of our New Testament because he was willing to sit and learn at the feet of Jesus. For three years, he went to the school where Jesus was the master teacher and was willing to learn. So are you willing to learn? Are you a know-it-all? You think you know, know everything that there is to know about being a Christian and being in the ways of the Lord? I feel sorry for you because you're to never stop growing. Never. You'd never reach perfection. Discipline, gentle, teachable. The fourth term is patient, patient. James chapter one and verse four says, but let patience have its perfect work. We live in a high strung, neurotic, impatient age. As you know, the American prayer is, Lord, I need patience and I want it right now. That's how oftentimes we pray to the Lord. Peter Marshall, who was at one time the chaplain of the Senate, in, in Washington said this in one of his prayers. Teach me, O Lord, the discipline of patience, for to wait is often harder than to work. To wait could be harder than to work. So as we have looked at these four words that define meekness, let me summarize for you and give to you a three-word definition of meekness. Meekness is power under control. That's what meekness is. Power under control. Now for a few moments, let's look at the development of weakness. How can we develop meekness in our lives? And the first way is to be submissive. Be submissive to the Son of God. James chapter 4 and verse 7, therefore submit to God. The word submit 
literally means to surrender. It means to give up. It's the idea of a soldier who's having to surrender to the enemy. Or an enemy, hopefully in our case, would be surrendering to an American soldier. When you throw up your hands and you say, I surrender, I give up. I lay down my weapons, I give up, I surrender. That's what you do when you submit to the Lord. You lay down all oppositions, all rights to your own life, and you say to the Lord Jesus, I surrender to you. You know, Jesus is not only called Savior, he is also called Lord. He is our Lord and Savior. As Savior, he saves us. As Lord, he controls us. He, he is our master in, in the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans chapter six. Paul uh, is talking about uh, being a, a, a slave to sin. And in essence, he says in Romans chapter six that uh, uh, what happens when you become a Christian is you change masters. Before you met the Lord Jesus, uh, you were a slave to sin. Sin uh, was your master. Uh, you were a slave to sin. Do you remember what Jesus said? He who commits sin becomes a slave to sin. So you don't control sin. Once you yield to sin, it begins to master you and control you. And what happens at conversion, when you repent of your sins and you turn to the Lord Jesus, you are, you're changing masters. You're, you're changing from sin and the devil being your master to Jesus and righteousness being your master. So look at it in Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 15. <clears throat> what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? May it never be. Verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That's a, a very unusual way to describe it, but that's exactly what we are. You are a Christian, therefore you are a slave to the Lord Jesus and slave to righteousness. Submit, submit to the Lord. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. Uh, well, a yoke, as you know, is the harness that was put around an animal like an oxen. And, and uh, that yoke controlled that animal. And Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. And let me control you. So submit. That's, that's the first step in becoming a meek individual. Surrender yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ's control and his right to lead you and to control you. After all, he redeemed you. You're not saved by, by uh, wealth, as, as Peter points out, by silver and gold, but by the, by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He bought your salvation when he died on the cross of Calvary. He has every right to be your Lord and your master. Surrender to him and you will become meek. Not only submission to the Son of God, but responsive to the Word of God responsive to the word of God in James chapter 1 and verse 21. James says, in humility, receive the word. He's talking about the word of God. He's talking about the Bible, the word of God. And uh, the Greek word for receive here means to welcome it, 
welcome it. You know, sometimes you can receive things or individual, uh, you, you know, you don't like to receive a, a notice in the mail uh, uh, that you're to appear in court for something. <laughs> That's not very welcome news. But boy, when you get joyful news, when you get good news, when you get positive news, you welcome it. God's word is good, healthy, wholesome, clean, pure word that's beneficial to you. And you should welcome it into your life. Uh, take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, just, uh, just two, two verses here, verses 14 and 15. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 14 and 15. Paul's writing to, to young Timothy. Uh, Paul, you might say, was his mentor in the ministry. So Paul was writing the books of First and Second Timothy to encourage and to advise uh, and instruct Paul on how to be a, a pastor and a minister. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, he said, you, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So uh, Paul was saying to Timothy, ever since you were a small child, you have been taught the scriptures. And you know and you have learned and, and you have grown in the faith. He says you've, you've been taught the, the terms and what it means to be a Christian and what salvation involves ever since you were a child. And he says, now continue in that. Peter picks up that same idea over in, in his epistle. And he says that we ought to long for the milk of the word whereby we may grow in the area of salvation. So you are expected to grow as a Christian. God expects you to grow. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, uh, somewhat rebuked them for not having grown. He said uh, in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 2, uh, there he says, I wanted to feed you a full course meal uh, like steak and potatoes and, and, and green beans and iced tea and homemade uh, ice cream and all those delicious coconut cream pie and all those kinds of things. He said, but, but, but you, your digestive system was the equivalent of a child's. You don't feed an adult meal to a child. A child must have something like milk. It must be simple and yet good and pure and healthy for that child. And, and a child, man, you, you, there's nothing like the scream of a child when, the child when a baby is hungry. He wants to be fed. He wants that milk bottle. So he's hungry for it. And Peter was saying, that's the way you ought to crave the word of the Lord. You, you ought to crave God's word. You ought to long for it. You ought to hunger for that. Because it is through the feeding on the word of God that you begin to grow. And you mature in your faith. If you neglect the word of God, you're going to remain a midget in your spiritual growth forever. You grow by feasting and meditating upon the word of God. And of course, it takes discipline to do that. You must be a meek individual in order to do that. You've got to deliberately, purposely set aside some time every day, whether it's in the morning or at night or during the middle of the day or all through the day, whether you just take a, a, a 30 second or a minute or a couple of minutes to, to look at the word of God and you read it and you meditate on it for a, a, a moment or so and you feast on it 
and you grow and you mature. And that takes discipline to do that. So to be responsive to the word of God, be submissive to the word, to the son of God. And then thirdly, to be filled with the spirit of God, be filled with the spirit of God. Now in the book of Galatians, the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians, Paul talks about our being filled with the spirit and walking in the spirit. Uh, to, be, to walk in the spirit means that you're conscious of the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Remember, I've told you before that if you are a child of God, if you are a Christian, you don't have to pray every day, oh Lord, come down and be with me today. Because when you accepted Christ as your Savior, what happened to you was, whether you understood it or not, was that the Holy Spirit took up residence in your heart. And he lives here. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the house that the Holy Spirit lives in. He lives in you. And everywhere you go, the Holy Spirit goes with you. And it's just a matter of being conscious of the fact that the Holy Spirit is with me. And the more I am conscious of that, the more I'm willing to allow him to take control of me and to walk in the Spirit to let him guide me, to let him speak to my spirit, that not only am I a child of God, but he helps me to discern right from wrong and what to do in the right way. And so Paul says in the book of Galatians chapter five that we are to walk in the spirit. And if we walk in the spirit and let the Holy Spirit control us, we're going to begin to produce what's called the fruit of the spirit. And one of the fruits of the spirit is gentleness. It is the Holy Spirit who creates the spirit of gentleness in your life, of meekness in your life. So we are to walk in the spirit. Now, a few years ago, when, when our country was beginning uh, the space program of sending uh, astronauts uh, uh, out to the moon, and to send other satellites and so forth into the moon. They, uh, they were, they were the, those who were responsible for the space program began looking for individuals who, who were qualified to become astronauts. And uh, they interviewed a, a, a lot of people, a lot of good people, but only those who had the best qualities to be astronauts were selected. And some of the qualifications of being an astronaut in addition to being physically fit, they had to be courageous, they had to be cool under pressure, and they had to have total self-control. Tom Wolfe, a writer and author, researched how they were looking for astronauts. And he came up with this, that they had to have courage and coolness under pressure and self-control. He knew what they had to have, but he didn't know what to call it. There wasn't a word for it. So he came up with the term, the right stuff. The right stuff. They made a movie out of it. He wrote a book entitled, The Right Stuff. And they made a movie of that. Well, we might say this meekness, this, this, this discipline and, and, and this gentleness and this teachability and, and all of these things that go into to being a meek person, that, that's what it takes. It's the right kind of stuff to make you the kind of Christian that God wants you to be. It's the right stuff. Now in conclusion, let me quickly share with you one final thought. 
Because going back to uh, this beatitude, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, there are two things I see in the passage that come as a consequence of your being a meek individual. The first reward is blessedness, because that's how he begins it. Blessed are the meek. The word blessed there could also be translated, oh, congratulations, you're meek. Oh, happy, 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 happy. <laughs> happy is that individual who is meek. Joyful, satisfying, wonderful experience to be a meek individual. So if you will be meek, if you will allow these things, these, this, this right stuff to make you meek, you'll be blessed. You'll be a happy person. You'll be contented. You'll be satisfied. You won't be rude and crude and selfish to other people or to yourself, but you'll be blessed. But the second reward is that you will inherit the earth. You will inherit the earth. And uh, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the Psalm chapter 37. Psalm chapter 37, we're almost through, so just take a moment, Psalm chapter 37. Because when Jesus said, you shall inherit the earth, he was quoting verses from Psalm 37. Psalm 37. I, I take this inheritance of the earth literally. I believe that the Bible teaches that the day will come when the meek individuals, the followers of Christ who are meek, will literally inherit the earth. And this is what he says in Psalm 37. Now, Psalm 37, of course, is addressed to the Jewish people. And, it, and some people think this term, inherit the earth, uh, is in relationship to the promised land. And it is. The, what, what we call the promised land, where Israel is, and the Palestinians are always trying to take it away from them. And, and, and unfortunately, uh, our own government, when, when the Palestinians and the, and the Jews get in conflict, the first thing our people want to do and our leader wants to do is, well, you, you need to give up some of this to the, to the Palestinians. Now, I'm not opposed to the Palestinians having their own place. But listen, folks, that area over there in the Middle East that we call the promised land was promised to the Jewish people. It belongs to them. And so I think that what uh, he's referring to here, of course, could include that. But I believe also that it goes beyond that. I believe it includes the whole globe, uh, the whole world. Uh, you remember, let me go back and refresh your memory about it. You remember when over in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, when John looks up and he saws the new heaven and the new earth coming down? Well, if it's coming down, what's it coming down to? John has to be standing on something when he looks up and sees it. I believe that he's standing on this earth, a earth that has been rejuvenated. You read the books of First and Second Peter, and Peter talks about how this world will go through a renovation. God destroyed the people of the world on one occasion by a flood. He's going to re redo, he's going to tear the earth all apart and put it back together again, and it's going to be free of all stains of sin. It's going to be paradise regained and we're going to live on this earth and come and go. The, you know, the gates of heaven, there, there are 12 of them, uh, three on every side, all made of pearls, one of each made of a singular pearl. And they're going to stay open all the time. And we're going to come and go. Well, what are we going to be doing? 
Well, I don't know all of it, but, you know, the Bible tells Revelation 22, we shall serve him. We're not going to sit around on a cloud all eternity and twiddle our thumbs and stroke our harps and be bored. Heaven's going to be an exciting place. And I believe that this earth regenerated and renewed and, and cleansed and purified from all sin and stain and the old devil is going to be thrown in the bottomless pit forever and ever and be tormented there. He's not in charge of hell. God is. And the old devil is going to be, the, the, Jesus said hell is prepared for the devil and his angels. And so the devil's not in charge of hell. God is and the devil's going to be tormented day and night. And everybody else who's there, the demons as well as those whose names are not found in the, in the book of life. But we're going to inherit the earth. So notice what it says in Psalm 37. Look at verse 9. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Verse 10. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you shall look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. Verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Look at verse 22. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Look at verse 29. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Verse 34. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the earth. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. So four or five, six times in that passage, he says, you'll inherit the earth. You'll inherit the earth. you inherit the earth. Well, what does he mean? Exactly what it says. You will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Those who can be taught some, those who are gentle, those who are kind, those who are disciplined, those who allow me to be their Lord and their master. You'll inherit the earth. This will be your home. Paradise. I quote, uh, close with this quote from William Hendrickson, another theologian, wrote commentaries. This is what he said. The most complete fulfillment of the promise is reserved for the future. When at Christ's return in glory, the meek will inherit the new heaven and earth, the rejuvenated universe, from which every stain of sin and every remnant of the curse will have been removed and which, in which righteousness will forever dwell. Man, won't it be great to live in a place for all eternity where righteousness will dwell? And we won't be bothered by the devil anymore. And we won't be tempted to sin. We won't live in sin anymore. It will be a sin-free world. Eyes not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has in store for those whom, if I might add the words of Jesus, who are meek, the mighty meek. Let's bow together. Most of us uh, here today know the Lord in the way of the forgiveness of sin, what it means to walk with him and to walk in the spirit and to rejoice in all the things that the Lord has prepared for us. But I may be speaking to someone today who doesn't know Jesus as Lord. And you've never accepted him as your savior. You've never repented of your sins. Oh, I've got good news for you today. If you'll just listen, you know, he, he says, I, I used the verse a moment ago. It says, when you come to the house of God, come to listen. Not just to the pastor, but to Jesus. Listen to the Holy Spirit. 
He's speaking to you now. And he's saying to you, you need to be born again. You need to repent of your sins. You need to turn away from your sins. You need to turn to Jesus. And you need to pray and ask him to come into your heart. That's what the Holy Spirit is saying to you now. And if you wish to become a Christian, then you need to say a prayer like this. And you can say this prayer in your heart. You can say it out loud if you wish, or just, you know, the Lord looks upon the heart. And he knows what is on the inside of your heart, and he knows what you're thinking and what you're going to say. So if you want to become a Christian, if you want to receive Jesus as your Savior, then you say this. Oh, God, I am a sinner, and I'm sorry for my sin. I want to turn from my sin. I believe Jesus Christ is your son. I believe that he died on the cross for my sin. I believe that he rose from the dead. And I want to trust him now as my savior and follow him as my Lord from this day forward. And so, Lord, I'm now putting my trust in you. And I surrender my life to you. Come into my life. And fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you have prayed that kind of prayer or that prayer for the first time, welcome to the kingdom of God. The next thing to do is to make it public because Jesus said, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who is in heaven. That's why we give an invitation. Not to make it difficult on you, not to embarrass you in any way. All of us who are here today and are members of this church and are saved have made it public in one way or another. So coming down the aisle and taking my hand and letting me present you to the congregation is just one of many ways that you can let other people know that you've accepted Christ as your Savior and you're following Him. And if that's what God is leading you to do today, then you come as we stand and sing. <laughs>